Well, as I mentioned before, we're on our way through a journey of Jeremiah. We're landing in Jeremiah chapter 15 today. And I want to read Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 10, and then pick up again 15 through 21. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 10, and then 15 through 21, uh, page 643 in your pew Bible. Let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 10, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone, because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. And you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At the end of the sermon, we're going to repeat the call to worship. So if you'd have your bulletin at that point, that'll save you from having to turn to it. This week I've been reading a book by Gordon Wood titled Revolutionary Characters. What made the Founding Fathers different? Revolutionary characters and what made the Founding Fathers different? Woods, in his preface, writes this story about Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson realized after the Revolution that he and his colleagues might someday be famous. So he began to collect portraits and busts of the different people that were a part of this revolution. And it's the people that Jefferson deemed as American worthies. 
So if, if in Jefferson's mind you were an American worthy, then he wanted to make sure he had an oil painting or a bust made of you. And so before he left for France, he had a commissioned uh, portrait for George Washington. When he arrived in France, he immediately bought a bust of Benjamin Franklin. And when he returned to the States, he had another painting commissioned for John Adams. And then he asked the same painter to paint a picture of himself. So he was an American worthy. And so Jefferson ended up with this quite a collection of, of American worthies. But the purposes, uh, or the purpose of Wood's book was to try to take you behind the paintings and the busts. To ask the question, well, what made these people different? What, what was it about the life that maybe you can't see in an oil painting that really made these men American worthies in Jefferson's mind? And to some degree, we all share this fascination with the lives of other people. If you go to a library, there are shelves lined with biographies. If you go to a grocery store... Uh, and you're in the grocery store checkout line, the magazines fill up each side of, uh, I wouldn't say American worthies, but information uh, that now you need to know about the rich and famous of America. And they, the headlines sort of just scream out to you. They give you these juicy bits of information that become attractive, and you want to know, well, what, what is that person like when, when nobody's around? And we have this hunger for that kind of information. What, what, what do these rich and famous and great people do when no one else is watching? What, what little detail might I be able to get about somebody that would open up their heart to me, that I would see something that would be interesting? Jeremiah was a great man. He would have been a biblical worthy. In Jesus' day, people would compare Jesus to Jeremiah. They would look at Jesus and say, Oh, you're, you're like Jeremiah. Michelangelo, on the painting that's portrayed on the front of your bulletin, thought of Jeremiah as one of the biblical worthies, so he put him on the Sistine Chapel. And when you, you look at that picture and, and Jeremiah's legs cross and make sort of a, a sad X, I want to ask the question when I look at that picture, well, what was Jeremiah like behind that painting? What, what did he do when nobody else was watching? What makes him different? And when we turn to chapter 15... We get a peek behind the preacher. We get to peek behind the prophet. We get to get to peek behind the painting and find out that what Jeremiah's life was like when you didn't see it was it was a life of prayer. And we get to see and enter into this intimate inner life of prayer with Jeremiah in chapter 15. And this particular passage, maybe you'll, you'll just have to listen to me preach to myself. Because this is a pastor 
who's taken on a congregation, and when he's not in front of everybody, this is what he's saying, this is what he's doing. So it was particularly helpful to me to think about Jeremiah being the pastor and and how he was praying, how he was wrestling with God in his private life of prayer. Eugene Peterson, in his book on Jeremiah, says this, What was Jeremiah really like? What did Jeremiah do when he wasn't staging confrontations with the religious leaders? What did he do when he wasn't standing people on their ears with his thundering prophecies? There is a single, clear, straightforward answer to these questions. He prayed. Prayer was the source of the personal intensity and integrity that is so impressive in Jeremiah. So we're going to look at the prayer this morning, verse 15 through 21, and it divides into two parts. The first three verses is Jeremiah's half of prayer. And that's always only half of prayer, because the other half of prayer is God's response, verse 18 through 21. That that makes up prayer is the prophet praying, or you praying, or the preacher praying, and then waiting and listening to what God has to say. And so we enter into this conversation. Jeremiah speaks for the first three verses, and that's uh, the part that we want to turn to right now. The first thing that you notice just in looking at the verses that we read is that Jeremiah is miserable. He's not just unhappy. This is the great prophet. This is the man who was fashioned by God and his name means God hurled him into a particular place and by God's design he's landed in this place and he's thundering out these things that God wants him to say and we get to this point in the life of Jeremiah and he is miserable. Verse 10, woe is me. Verse 15, I suffer. Verse 17, I sat alone. Verse 18, my pain is unceasing. I think it's so important just to recognize this point. That you can be a Christian and be miserable at some times. The reason I say that is because for some people they live in this sort of superficial Christian uh, world that says, you know, sort of once you give your life to Christ, then then everything's going to be fine. Everything's great. And, And you get the feeling when you're around those people, you know, it's not always great for me. And sometimes I feel miserable and you feel like, well, maybe I just didn't really get Christ. I mean, I I don't feel that way all the time. So you you may just give your life to the Lord over and over and over again, thinking maybe it's going to capture me this time. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in a great, great book called Spiritual Depression. He answers this kind of thinking with this. The New Testament and our own experience show very clearly that kind of thinking is far from being the case. And if we have adopted that superficial view, we shall soon be in some kind of trouble. 
Unhappiness is a condition that does affect Christian people. There is in this a strange kind of comfort, which is nevertheless very real. If anyone hearing my words is in trouble, let me say this. The fact that you are unhappy or troubled is no indication that you are not a Christian. It's helpful for me as a preacher to hear Jeremiah's prayer. To understand how he emotionally is dealing with very difficult circumstances in his life. He's not sort of glibly bouncing along and saying, you know, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. He's in a tough situation. And the situation is racking his emotional life and he is unhappy. He's miserable. And he's not shy about bringing his misery before the Lord. You and I shouldn't be shy about bringing our misery before the Lord. Now, you don't need to bring it before everyone you see. And you run into those kinds of people. And, and when you know that person's coming your way, you find another aisle to go down, do you not? Because you just know they're just going to come with misery and you're just tired. You heard the story and here it comes again. So you find yourself going in a different way. But Jeremiah isn't afraid, nor should we be afraid to say, Lord, this is the way I feel. And, and I'm just going to, I'm not going to try to couch my language and I'm not trying to dress it up like you might not know what I'm really feeling. I'm just trying to give it to you straight. And he gives it to him straight. And you see what makes, is making Jeremiah unhappy. Or what he's complaining about. That's probably the title over this chapter for you. One, he is experiencing undeserved suffering. He really is suffering, and his suffering is completely undeserved. And he says this, sort of, he sets it up in a picture. He says, you know, if I had lent somebody some money, and then I come back to them, and they see me coming, then they might be unhappy saying, here comes Jeremiah again. He's going to be asking for his money, and that would make things unhappy. Or, if I had borrowed some money, and then... here I come and I borrowed some money and I'm going to feel badly. I borrowed the money and I haven't given back. But I haven't lent any money and I haven't borrowed any money and yet all the people are unhappy with me. In other words, I haven't done anything wrong to these people that I'm ministering to, but they're all miserable about me. They're all cursing me. And he just doesn't get it. He's been the faithful delivery system, but the people he's delivering it to are cursing Jeremiah. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I haven't done anything wrong. But the people I haven't done anything wrong to are unhappy with me. You ever felt that way? We get to verse 15, we see Jeremiah is going to tell us who he thinks is responsible for this misery. God is. Oh Lord, you know. Down at the bottom of that verse, know. 
know that for your sake I bear reproach or I suffer. Now that word know in the Hebrew is an imperative. Like a a command or a demand. And so Jeremiah launches right into his prayer and he's asking God to think. God, think. Are you thinking? I'm thinking. I'm getting a clear picture, but I don't think you're thinking. Because I'm suffering for your sake. I didn't volunteer for this. I got drafted. I'm not the one who wants to give a a judgment sermon every single Sunday. That's not. I wanted to do more of the love and mercy sermons. But here I am, drafted now, to give these sermons on judgment, and I'm miserable. And you're responsible for that in some fashion. The word suffer or reproach means I'm being stripped down. I come to the pulpit each Sunday, and really what I get is, I just get people who want to take swipes at me. They just want to strip some portion of me away. Then he says, take vengeance for me on my persecutors. For in your forbearance or in your patience, do not take me away. You see, do you hear what he's saying? God, you're moving too slow. Do you not see that? Your patience on these people who are in the wrong, they're going to kill me. And so I'd like for you to speed up the process. You ever felt that way? You ever had a prayer where you're saying, God, it just really looks like you're moving too slow here. But behind the painting, Jeremiah's he's getting in God's face and saying, Pay attention. You know, I'm, I'm the faithful preacher, but what happens every Sunday for lunch is the preacher gets roasted. And it just doesn't look like you're moving fast enough. Anybody want to volunteer for Jeremiah's assignment? Anybody want to get drafted for this kind of work? If I were delivering, this is just such a great message to deliver if you're speaking to a group of pastors. I would ask the the group of pastors, I'd say, pastors, any pastors feel this way? Any pastors feel like they got drafted, they didn't volunteer for it? Anyone feel like in their volunteering, they've been faithful, but it just feels like people are stripping things away at you. The very people you're trying to serve are trying to cut your hands off. Any pastor's wives feel that way? I don't think they volunteer. Just feels like I've I've gotten into this thing for God, and it's just costing me every day. But I don't think you have to be a pastor to appreciate this emotional strain. I, I think you could be a an elder or a deacon, and, and you. 
talk to the pastor and you like the pastor and so you agree to you know, give away your time and you do give away your time and you're, you're trying to serve the, the people faithfully but the, the very people you're trying to serve, they're trying to, to bite away at you. Or, or you could be uh, on InterVarsity staff or Crusade or Young Life staff or you could be volunteering in, in the children's ministry and you could say, I'm giving my time, I, I'm volunteering my time, and most of the comments are from the parents of the very people I'm trying to serve who just sort of under the radar screen give you those little comments, you remember hearing them? They're kind of comments like, well, well you know, this would be a better way to do it. The, the very people you're trying to serve are just nibbling at you and stripping away. And you're standing at the door getting all the kids in the right line and you smile at the parent. <laughs> yeah. But, you, you know, you're gritting your teeth. I'm a volunteer! You come in and give it a shot. Okay, I love that idea. Come on in next week. Anybody felt that? kind of friction in, in their service. Anyone felt like ever since I've been volunteering for the Lord, all it seemed like I'm getting is a stripping away at my own person and personality. If you've ever felt that way, then you, you can get into the shoes of Jeremiah. You get the sense of what Jeremiah is feeling here. Second thing we see is he's feeling lonely. He has two kinds of loneliness. We see it in verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight, the delight of my heart. I'm called by your name, the Lord, the God of hosts. And I didn't sit in the company of revelers. I I didn't go in that direction. I didn't rejoice with those people. But I sat alone. When I was at Furman University, we would go up into the mountains, which was not very far. We weren't very far from them in Greenville, South Carolina. And we'd go up to this one particular bridge, and we'd go bridge jumping. Now, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying this is what happened. And we'd go to these bridges, and we went to this one Kiwi Toxaway bridge. And I don't know, it was 400 feet in the air, maybe. Well, no, maybe it was 30. It just seemed really high in the air. And we'd all, a bunch of guys, line up on the bridge, and we'd jump off. And almost all the time in your sort of group of going up there, you'd have somebody who hadn't been before. And so you'd all get up on this bridge and you're sort of swaying and it looks like a long way down. And you're saying, okay guys, you ready? You're looking down the line. On three, we're going to jump. Okay. One, two, three. all yell and what happens? The one guy who's never been before, he jumps. All the other guys have been, they're standing on the bridge. And the guy's screaming, ah! he gets down to the bottom. He gets up, whatever, we're just making sure it's safe. I mean, you know, never know what might float into the river here. 
And then you jump off. You ever felt like that? You're all lined up. You, you love going for the Lord. And you, you thought everyone was going to jump with you. I had this whole group of high school guys. I had a, a several people in my college suite. I, I had a couple of people in my church. I, I had some friends who were all going to jump off. And you know what it feels like? It feels like I jumped off by myself. It feels like no one else is really taking the Word of God seriously. Oh, everybody else is saying, oh, I think that's wonderful and stuff. But nobody actually plunged off. It was just me. I was just by myself. That can happen if you're in high school or college. It can happen if you're single. You've eaten the Word of God and you've delighted in the Word of God, but because your delight in the Word of God, you've created some godly convictions. And the godly convictions have left you alone on a Saturday night. You just can't go to the place where all the revelers are. And you're not happy about it. You're, you're sitting alone. It could happen if you're married. You come to church and you, you love the Word of God. But your husband or wife, eh, it's not that interesting. Occasionally they come just out of duty. And, and in your marriage you feel alone. You feel like you jumped off, but... You, But your husband and wife, they didn't come with you. You can feel this way in your own family. You have a hunger for the Word of the Lord. You're really trying to live your life differently for the Lord. You thought everyone would be with you because you're so excited about it. And you realize, you know what? I'm really alone. I'm kind of the... The, the, he takes religion too seriously, guy. I mean, he should just sort of back off. You ever felt that way? You're in your own family, and yet you're alone. If you felt any of those things, then you have a sense of what Jeremiah is feeling. But he's not just feeling abandoned by his friends. He's not just feeling lonely or distant from the world. Very difficult verse, verse 18. He's feeling abandoned by God. My pain is unceasing. My wound is incurable. It's refusing to be healed. And will you, Lord... Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? Like waters that have failed? I I just get this picture of Jeremiah sitting here in this prayer and thinking about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. God, I have not walked in that counsel. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. God, I have not stood in their way. 
Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of mockers. I have not sat down with those people. In fact, I've done exactly what the psalmist said. But he who delights in the law of the Lord, I've eaten up the law. I've gotten so much excitement and energy for eating up the law. And what does it say is going to happen to that man? He's going to be like a tree. Where? Planted by this stream of living water. And Jeremiah gets to the stream and there's no stream. I did all of the things in these verses, Lord, but when I came to the one source, when I knew no one else on the world or in the world would be with me, I knew I could go to you and you would be there. And Jeremiah goes and he feels like he's been deceived. The, The stream is dry. The one place is empty. You ever felt that way? That God has let you down? I mean, maybe you've been too afraid to even admit it. (laughs) I'm a pastor. I'm a ministry leader. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I can't say that kind of stuff. My my whole world would unravel if I said something like that. Well, Jeremiah's world is unraveling. It, It is okay to go to God if your world is unraveling, even if it feels like He's part of the unraveling. Eugene Peterson says this in his book. Jeremiah stops speaking, but the prayer continues. I love this part. For prayer does not end when we end. In prayer, God is not merely an audience. He's a partner. Jeremiah has spoken honestly, and now he listens. If you're a person who prays, then obviously you take God seriously. Why why else would you pray? But if in your prayer, all of your prayer is informing God of your situation, of telling Him or giving Him instructions on how He might work better, and at the end of that conversation you say, Amen, then you don't take... God is seriously as you take yourself. Because you've just entered into prayer of where you're just saying, God, here's all the things you need to work at, and I'll be back in a little bit later when you've done that. So Jeremiah is in a serious situation. He's taking himself seriously, but he's taking God more seriously. He's bringing his serious situation underneath God. And that's what we do every Sunday morning when we do the call to prayer. I'm not saying that the things you're going through are not serious, but there's something more serious. And you've got to get that something on top of your life so that every serious thing can get oriented underneath God Almighty, you're not the most serious person in this situation. God's the most serious person. 
And Jeremiah takes God seriously. And he says, God, this is the way I've been feeling. I might be way off base. So I've got to get underneath you and you've got to reorient my thinking. And God reorients Jeremiah's thinking. I think this is a a really hard thing for you and I to do. Because Jeremiah was going through undeserved suffering. He did feel abandoned by God. And God is not trying to say, Jeremiah, you're not suffering. He really is suffering. But listen to these really unusual response by God. God answers the complaint. He doesn't answer the complaint. He's answering the complainer. He's zeroing in right into Jeremiah's heart. He's going through the complaint into the heart of the complainer. And the first thing that God says is repent. Or return. This is the same thing Jeremiah has been saying to his people. I mean, I mean, all of the sermons that I've given so far have been Jeremiah sermons. And if you've heard them, you've said, this sounds a lot like last week's sermon. Because it's the same thing. He's, he's looking at his people and in different ways he's trying to help his people. You're, you're following, following, following into, or follow, follow, falling, thank you, into idolatry. And the Lord can see it. You're, you're holding on to other things. You're, you're making other things more important than the Lord. And Jeremiah thunders out, repent, turn around, let go of those things, go after God. And God comes in now preaching to Jeremiah and he says the exact same thing to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, repent. For what? That's what I would want to say if I was Jeremiah. What do I need to repent for? Jeremiah is about ready to let his pain become his idol. Jeremiah is just about ready to let his suffering become an idol. And everything about Jeremiah's life now is going to revolve around his own suffering. God is not angry, I don't sense, in this passage. But he sees something that Jeremiah doesn't see. Jeremiah is blinded by his own pain, his internal turmoil, and and that blindedness, that disruption internally has caused Jeremiah to put God on trial for Jeremiah's problems. He's right on the verge of blaming God for his own problems. Jeremiah is just about ready to reverse the roles. He's he's had God on top and 
Him on the bottom, but you can hear it in this prayer. God, you will answer to me for the situations I'm finding myself in. And God's kindly telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we don't want to go that way. I'm not denying your feelings, but don't let your feelings become an idol that now you serve them. You see, Jeremiah was just about ready to get stuck on himself from his own suffering. And getting stuck on yourself from your own popularity or your own pride or your own suffering is still being stuck on yourself. And not stuck on God. Now I have no doubt this morning that there are people who need to hear this response by God. You have suffered undeservedly. You have felt alone in this world. You have felt abandoned by God. And you have allowed those feelings to now own you. And you serve those feelings. They orient your whole life. And the first thing you need to do is see that and repent. And say, God, I just about made my pain my God. It's okay to tell God you're suffering. It's not okay to allow your suffering to turn you away from God. You know, you know people like this. They were sort of going along with God in some way, but something tragic happened. It was probably undeserved, but they never could go farther with God after that. He's to blame for... And because He didn't come through in, then I can't go on. You just found out who that person serves. They serve themselves by allowing that pain to become the center of their lives. So God does a great work in Jeremiah's heart. This is not easy. You notice God doesn't say, Jeremiah, you're not suffering. Come on, guy. I'll show you suffering. He doesn't do that. He says, I just can't allow you, Jeremiah, to make that your God. And then he asked Jeremiah to remember. Jeremiah, I want you to turn away from yourself for a moment. And I want you to, with, with both of your hands, grasp hold of these promises. I'm not going to tell you anything new. I'm just going to remind you of the things I've been saying all along. And you can just hear the echoes of this God's response back in Jeremiah chapter 1. I am with you. I will save you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will save you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. 
God just wants to remind His prophet of these truths. Because in your pain, the the promises of God can sort of slip away. And so if you're in that situation, you, you may need exactly what Jeremiah got from God. That God Almighty is saying to you this morning, I will save you. I have not forgotten about you. I am going to redeem you. I am with you all the way to the end. And Jeremiah needs to hear that because in a few more chapters, he ends up in the bottom of a well. And then right after that, he's locked up into a tower by himself. And at the end of his life, he's taken off to Egypt and he's killed. And and you can imagine how many times Jeremiah in his lifetime had to keep claiming these promises. I am going to redeem you. I am going to buy you back. And where does that happen for Jeremiah? Does it happen in his lifetime? No, it does not. It might not happen in your lifetime. The Apostle Paul says, All the promises of God are yes and amen in what? In Christ. So all of your pain, as undeserved as it is, and and as hurting as you are, God is going to take that pain, He is going to take that loneliness, and He's going to buy it back. And you're going to look at Him and say, Praise God, I didn't allow that thing to become my idol. God Almighty, who's bigger than that, is the God that I serve. Lord, there are people here who very much identify with Jeremiah's prayer. They're really doing everything they can to be faithful. And yet they feel alone. They feel abandoned. They, don't, they don't, just don't feel abandoned by, by their friends or their family, but they feel abandoned by you. And so I am praying today that in this prayer, they can hear the deep truths and promises that you will never leave them or forsake them. You are with them. And I am praying that you would break through the barrier of pain that they might have set up in their life as an idol. And as difficult as that is to say and to hear for some person or some people here, that's the truth. And that needs to be knocked down. And I'm praying that your Holy Spirit through the prayer of Jeremiah would knock down that pain. And that pain wouldn't just go away. It would be seen in the light of the cross. So it's not just forgotten, it's dealt with in the right way, in the right manner. Lord, we, we, we come to You praying that even in our emotions, in our feelings, 
that we can, we can just get it wrong. And we need you to come in and reorient our thinking underneath the truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.